0: I have a seven year old son named Ari. And after school every day, we like to go to the park nearby and play. Sometimes we play hide and seek. Sometimes we climb on the jungle gym. But the other day, Ari wanted to play baseball. He wanted to play catch, throw a ball. And so we got our gloves, he brought the ball and we started throwing. And I threw the ball to him and then he threw the ball back to me. And it was a great throw. It arced up high, it was sailing across the sky, and then all of a sudden it dropped like a brick. Of course, that's not how it happened. Things don't just suddenly drop. They continue on in an even manner. But this is how the ancient philosopher Aristotle thought movement on earth worked. He believed that there were five elements, earth, water, fire, air, and ether. Earth elements, like rocks and plants, moved down toward the earth. Air and fire move up into the air. Heavier objects fall more quickly than lighter objects. A large rock, or a baseball, will fall more quickly than a pen. The 20th century philosopher Thomas Kuhn was struck by Aristotle's beliefs about motion. To Kuhn, these theories made no sense. Kuhn knew that objects fall because of gravity, not because of their elemental makeup. He knew that rocks and pens fall at the same speed, no matter how heavy or light they are. But he also knew that Aristotle was one of the smartest philosophers of the ancient world.
1: There's a moment that Kuhn had where he sort of saw the world through Aristotle's eyes. He he saw how Aristotle's ideas, even though to us they don't really make sense, they could have made sense to someone as smart as Aristotle.
0: That's Samuel Gershman, an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University. Kuhn realized that Aristotle believed what he did for a reason— He didn't know about gravity. He didn't even know that the earth revolves around the sun and not the other way around. Aristotle had a basic set of assumptions that he thought were right, a paradigm that he believed to be true. And he understood the world according to that paradigm. Aristotle's conclusions weren't the problem. The problem was his assumptions. Then Kuhn took this idea one step further. If Aristotle was stuck within his own way of seeing the world, then so are we.
1: It's entirely possible and indeed probable that at some point people are going to look back on us in the exact same way that we look back on Aristotle. How could they have been thinking those things? How could they have seen the world in such manifestly false ways? And for me personally, reading this book, that that kind of uh, was a moment where this, the scales dropped from my eyes, and I realized that of course this makes complete sense. You know, I could be seeing the world through my own eyes and things that I just completely took for granted could be false.
0: Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Gershman to talk about Thomas Kuhn's book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Thomas Kuhn was an American philosopher of science. He published The Structure of Scientific Revolutions in 1962, and in it, he introduced his theory of scientific revolutions, what would later be called a paradigm shift. This idea runs counter to the way science is generally
1: taught. When you're taught science in school, you see scientific history as a kind of linear progression, where scientific theories are continually improving upon one another, And so the hope is that eventually you'll thoroughly understand a phenomenon or an area of study, uh, and then you'll be done. And certainly that's the way many practicing scientists would like it to be, but the reality is much more complicated. In the book, Kuhn sets up a distinction between what he calls normal
0: science and scientific revolutions. Normal science is that story we learn in school. Scientists make discoveries and improve on their research, and over time, they get closer and closer to the truth. For normal science to work, scientists need to agree about a few
1: key things. Scientists, even though they might disagree about particular theoretical interpretations, there's a minimal foundation for agreement. Uh, So for example, we can minimally agree about what are the data that need to be explained. So you look through a telescope, you see some stars, and you could develop a theory about the motions of celestial bodies uh, and try to predict where those bodies will be at some point in time. Um, And the basic data there are the positions of those bodies in space.
0: This might seem obvious. Two scientists look through a telescope, they both see the stars, and they agree about where the stars are.
1: But you have to keep in mind that we're not measuring the positions of stars directly, we're measuring them through a telescope. We have a measuring instrument. And in fact, when the telescope was um, first deployed by Galileo, there were huge arguments about the measurement device itself.
0: When the telescope was invented in the 1600s, it gave people a new view of the heavens. Stars, planets, and moons that were invisible to the naked eye could suddenly be seen. The Italian astronomer Galileo Galilei used the telescope to identify the four biggest moons of Jupiter, the rings of Saturn, and the phases of Venus. And he concluded that the Earth revolved around the Sun, and not the other way around. To believe Galileo's conclusions, we have to know that his data is correct. But how do we know his data is correct? We can't fly into space to measure where the planets are. So do we just trust the telescope? How do we know what we know? The study of this question is called epistemology. And people have been debating epistemology for hundreds of years.
1: But Kuhn was interested in more than just epistemology. He was interested in, if you sort of move away from the the measurement part of it, and go inside the scientist's head. What are the assumptions inside the scientist's head that are so basic that the scientist doesn't even think about them as assumptions at all, and yet they pervade the entire way that the scientist sees the world, or, or at least this, uh, the area of study, and, and interprets uh, his or her measurements um, and builds theories around those measurements.
0: This is what Kuhn called the research paradigm. It's a set of theories, beliefs, norms, and practices that are fundamental to a scientist's work. Research paradigms are a key part of normal science. Kuhn said that for normal science to work, scientists have to agree on what to measure. We agree to look at the stars. But they also have to agree about the basic assumptions they're building on. They have to be working with the same paradigm. The paradigm is so fundamental, the scientists might not even know it's there. So what did he end up arguing? Uh, What was his insight into how our mind
1: structures what we begin to take for granted? One of the things that Kuhn points out is that um, we're all used to a particular example of changing perspectives, which is over the course of scientific training. So, You start as a student, and you see some data, and it could be just meaningless numbers, let's say, or, you know, points on a piece of paper. But then over the course of training, that information becomes meaningful to you.
0: You walk into class on day one and see a lot of data points on a graph. You have no idea what these data points mean. But over the course of the semester, you learn more and more about the data. Once you understand the data, you can start to interpret it.
1: I train you until you see things the same way that I see them. And then you may go on to develop new theories, but without necessarily questioning the the basic kind of perceptual and um, conceptual assumptions.
0: This is how a paradigm gets passed from one person to the next. A teacher instructs a student. The student builds on what they learned from the teacher, gathering new information and developing new theories. Then the student teaches what they know to someone else. The student might come up with a brand new way of interpreting the data, but they accept the paradigm.
1: Kuhn's point was that you and I, in order to communicate about science, have to basically, at some level, um, see the world in the same way. And when that starts to break down, that's when scientific revolutions happen, when um, there could be a totally new way of seeing the world that is basically incompatible with the old way of measuring the world.
0: In the time of Galileo, there were two competing theories about the planet's movements some people thought the sun revolved around the earth that was one paradigm and some people thought the earth revolved around the sun that was the other this was no longer normal science this was a paradigm shift the scientists might have agreed about how the telescope worked and what it was showing them but they didn't agree on the fundamental beliefs about the way the system operated the problem wasn't their conclusions it was their assumptions in developing his theory of paradigm shifts. Kuhn was influenced by an 18th-century movement called psychophysics. Psychophysics was developed by German physicists who wanted to study how people experience the world.
1: They were interested in the relationship between some external stimulus, like the loudness of a tone, and um, a person's internal representation of that stimulus.
0: Of course, the scientists couldn't directly measure the way their subjects represented a stimulus. They couldn't see what people were thinking. Instead, they measured the way a subject reacted.
1: So, for example, they might ask you to discriminate between two tones of different um, levels of loudness. By changing uh, the stimulus and then measuring your changes in behavior, they could try to reconstruct something about uh, your internal representation of that stimulus.
0: A scientist turns the volume up and sees how your behavior changes. From there, they can draw conclusions. Another group, called the Gestalt Psychologists, built on these findings.
1: The Gestalt Psychologists kind of took that on in a more radical way by showing how um, your perception of all sorts of things like motion, geometric form, brightness, uh, all depend on various kinds of contextual factors.
0: For example, a sound might seem louder or quieter depending if you're on a busy street or in a silent house the Gestalt psychologist also found that some stimuli could appear to be two different things at once. This is how many optical illusions work.
1: So, for example, there are some common ones that many people know, like the duck-rabbit illusion, where you, the same stimulus can look at one moment like a duck, and then another moment like a rabbit. In um, dress
0: or white dress.
1: Right, yeah, so that's a modern example of that. And, and Kuhn was very interested in that because he thought that that provided some kind of insight into the the way that scientists see the world, that that you could see the same um, measurement and at one moment interpret it one way and then at the next moment interpret it another way. That was very significant for Kuhn.
0: So that example I think is really helpful, that it's not about the data because it can be interpreted multiple ways. How did that insight lead into his theory of change or his theory of scientific change? He has a story about how paradigms change. What is that story?
1: Well, the essence of the story is that there's an accumulation of discrepancies.
0: One view of science says that instead of looking for evidence that will prove their theories correct, scientists should instead look for evidence that will prove their theories wrong.
1: You have to kill theories by bludgeoning them with data that they can't explain. But many people have pointed out that that really doesn't do justice to the way science actually works because we're constantly encountering um, discrepancies all the time and we sort of sweep them under the rug or we invoke various kinds of auxiliary hypotheses to explain away the discrepancies.
0: Here's a famous example. It's the 19th century. Astronomers agree that the Earth revolves around the Sun. But they don't know exactly where the planets are. According to the laws of gravity, the planets they know about should behave differently than they do. The data isn't lining up with their theory.
1: instead of abandoning the theory entirely like they posited that there were hidden variables that could explain away the discrepancy uh, sometimes long before those variables were directly measured. so for example, you know this is how planets some planets have been discovered
0: Well, and I think some of the early astronomers came up with really elaborate kind of orbital patterns, right, in retrospect seem really outlandish, but it's because they really
1: wanted it to fit their model. There's a famous um, French astronomer named De Verrier who um, was concerned about these discrepancies between the predictions of the Newtonian theory of gravitation and the the motions of of planets in the solar system and he posited that there was a planet there that later was observed and that's where Neptune came from. But actually, later in his life, he tried to pull the same trick again and posited that there was a planet called Vulcan in the s- solar system and died believing that there was such a planet. Um, but in fa- point of fact, there was no planet. Uh, basically the same trick that had served him so well failed him later on.
0: There are a lot of examples like this one in the history of science. It can be a challenge for scientists to figure out when it makes sense to say there's a hidden explanation, like an undiscovered planet, and when it doesn't.
1: Kuhn's point was really that there comes a point at which the auxiliary hypotheses can no longer um, kind of hold back the tide of discrepancies.
0: One contradictory data point won't kill a theory. A scientist will suggest another way to fit this data into their paradigm. But when there are a lot of data points that don't match up with the theory, Then the theory falls apart.
1: Basically, our understanding gets thrown into temporary chaos until um, the observations can coalesce around some new paradigm and then kind of starts over again.
0: Could a possible metaphor for the story be something like the Jenga game where you can take out piece by piece um, various blocks from the tower and it still stands, but at some crucial moment you take out
1: the last piece and it collapses. Mm -hmm, Something like that, yeah. Um, But it's possible that, you know, the Jenga pieces aren't even Jenga pieces. And um, once we can't even agree on what the Jenga pieces are, then um, that's another way that the theory can collapse.
0: Let's return to Aristotle. Aristotle was working within the paradigm of his time, If we were living in that paradigm, his conclusions would make sense to us. But in the past 2,500 years, the paradigms have shifted. Scientists discovered more and more data that contradicted Aristotle's theories, and eventually those theories fell apart. From that chaos, a new paradigm was born. To help illustrate this further, let's look at an example from Professor Gershman's field, cognitive neuroscience. One way that neuroscientists study the brain is by putting a person in an MRI machine and measuring how their brain responds to a stimulus, like a picture or a sound. Then, they try to establish a relationship between the brain signals and the stimulus.
1: It's a way of realizing the dream of the the German psychophysicist, that you could actually measure something that's inside the brain, uh, not just the stuff coming in and going out. For
0: example, the scientist might put a woman in an MRI machine and show her a picture of a boat. When she sees the boat, there's a whole bunch of activity in the visual cortex in her brain. If the scientist flips the boat upside down, the activity slows. When the scientist puts the boat right side up again, the activity speeds up. By changing just the orientation of the boat, right side up or upside down, the scientist can identify which parts of her brain care about orientation. This seems pretty straightforward within a certain paradigm.
1: Prior to even getting to that point, you have to decide what are the properties that you want to look for. So. There's a hidden assumption here that these are the right things to measure.
0: Scientists come up with questions and hypotheses based on their hidden assumptions. They look where they think they'll find the answer, and they look for the answer they think they'll find. A famous anecdote illustrates this phenomenon.
1: The story is that there's a, there's a drunk that's searching for his keys under a lamp uh, at nighttime next to a park. And a police officer comes up and he says, what are you doing here? And the guy says, I'm looking for my keys. And he said, Did, did you lose them over here? And he says, No, I lost them over uh, over in the park. And the police officer says, Well, why are you looking here? And he says, Because that's where the light is. I think that's true to some extent for, for neuroscience that we look for things that we know how to conceive of. Um, and even, even when we recognize the limits of that approach, that there might be things that the brain codes that we haven't even thought of. We still end up kind of trapped in our own conceptual apparatus, Um, but we only kind of break free of our our concepts when we can somehow equip ourselves with some new theoretical notion that makes certain things visible that used to be invisible.
0: According to Kuhn, this is how scientific revolutions happen. When the invisible assumptions become visible, they can be reimagined. Then the paradigm shifts. So is there any way to leave all our paradigms behind? Can we live with no paradigm?
1: In his writings, John Ruskin, the art critic, sometimes invoked this notion of the innocent eye. Um, this this idea that you could just look at things and see things the way that they really are. And one of the messages from modern psychology that influenced Kroon a lot was that you can't do that. There is no innocent eye. And um, we have to reckon with the fact that all of our observations are not innocent they're they're informed by our theories
0: this isn't the same thing as saying there's no such thing as objective truth is it how, how does it differ from that kind of sphere of argument or or is it is it in line with that
1: the way that i interpret the message from kuhn's book is that Um, Even if there was an objective truth, we might not be able to access it Um, because our access to the world is mediated not only by various kinds of measurement devices, but also the kind of conceptual lens through which we see the world, our theories, that that, the observations really aren't theory-independent. Some people think of this as deeply depressing about science, that somehow we can't get rid of the human factor. Um, but I, I guess I have the disposition of a humanist and I, I don't, I'm not really afraid of that possibility. Um, I think that we should embrace the human factor and accept that the limits of our understanding of the world are, um, at least partly marked by the limits of our ingenuity in thinking about the world. Um, and once we accept that there aren't real asymptotes in our understanding, um, it's kind of a beautiful thing. Like, we can constantly explore new ways of thinking about the world. Um, We're not just going to reach truth and then everybody can retire.
0: If we can't reach objective truth, then controlling the paradigm can mean controlling how we understand our reality. The paradigm is power.
1: All scientific frameworks, normal science in general, uh, is going to impose a power structure um, because it's excluding certain kinds of explanations as as being valid.
0: If you believe one of these quote-unquote invalid theories, you can't fit within the paradigm. But there's a benefit to accepting that we can't reach objective truth. Nobody can say their paradigm is perfect.
1: We have to always at least leave open the possibility that we're wrong and um, I like that aspect uh, of science. Um, it's to me, it's a sort of liberating message that you can appeal to outsiders and crackpots and uh, poets and novelists for your inspiration, that there, there's going be there's always going to be um, cracks in the facade that, can let in light in unexpected ways. That's beautifully put. Um, How did this book influence uh,
0: the field of psychology?
1: I actually think that this book has not influenced psychology enough, nor has it influenced neuroscience enough. My, My perception is that scientists in general are very resistant to relativistic notions because they see it as some kind of humanist plot to undermine science or something like that. You know, for, for them, they've set up their their paradigm, they're doing normal science for the most part, um, and they don't see anything wrong with that. And I think in some ways, uh, Kuhn wouldn't see anything wrong with that either. Um, but the problem comes when, when there's some attempt to um, disintegrate the paradigm. Um, and that Obviously, that's not something that's appreciated by people who are pursuing normal science. So I think that, like, I basically gave the critique that I was giving to you earlier about um, the way in which our our sort of conceptual assumptions um, pervade every aspect of neuroscience, that we can't really interpret anything that we measure um, outside the Space delimited by our assumptions and um, neuroscientists are very resistant to that notion i don 't think they want to i don't think they're quite ready to reckon with that I mean some of, some of them are
0: well it's always hard to eat humble pie I guess as a scholar um, but it's interesting that he the book begins with a moment of historical empathy um, and a kind of Intellectual humility, like, oh, I could have been wrong, too. And the lesson for scientists as a whole is always remember, you know, you're in a particular paradigm. It's not that there's no truth. It's just that it's maybe never complete.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I like thinking about it as never being being complete.
0: So what fields has it taken hold in more? This book I read as an undergrad— um, it's an important book, a very important book, um, and it's influenced a lot of a lot of people. but where where has its ideas taken hold the most in your view?
1: Well, certainly, in philosophy of science, it was hugely influential um, and it caused a lot of debate about to what extent we should be thinking about, Objective knowledge as being something kind of fundamentally elusive, or is it possible that um, is it possible to define the boundaries of knowledge um, in such a way that we don't have to completely give up the notion of objective truth or accessing objective truth? Um, And other other thinkers have kind of spun similar. Ideas about um, scientific paradigms um, and um, and sort of the social and psychological aspects of science. So I think I think that was really a big turning point.
0: Yeah, it strikes me just as you say it. What's powerful about this is it it seems to be a middle way between those who say there's absolute objective truth we can access it humans. Are powerful, perfect creatures. And there is another side that says we can't know anything. All truth is biased. There's no such thing as uh, any kind of objective truth. In fact, therefore, you know, who's to say what anything is? You know, they're both extremes, I suppose. Um, But Kuhn offers this other way, which is still confident about what science can achieve but preserves a humility about any
1: one particular moment in which it's all contained. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it, it certainly does not deny the successes of science. You know, we can send rockets to the moon. That's because of science. It's not like there's no there there, right? Um, but just because we can send rockets to the moon doesn't mean that our um, conceptualization of the laws of science is uh, the laws of science have been kind of fixed within a single framework. Could you give us the cocktail party
0: answer to what is this book about and why does it matter? Why is this a book that's changed the
1: world? The book is important because it develops a picture of how science actually works and the philosophical implications of that picture. And in particular, the idea that science does not progress linearly um, but moves in kind of discrete jumps between um, different paradigms in which the set of assumptions are relatively stable Uh, until they break down in the face of stress from observations that don't fit with the prevailing paradigm. Um, And when that happens, you have a revolution. And Kuhn's contribution was to try to really get to the heart of what a revolution was in the context of science, um, as a kind of conceptual overturning not just of a particular theory, but of a whole way of seeing the world. Um, And in that way, this work, which is in part about the history of science, also intersects with um, the philosophy of science and the psychology of science and the sociology of science. And uh, it's a really unique work at the intersection of those fields. There's really nothing quite like it.
0: Rit Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Rit Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.